page 50, session 7 of the Gospel-Centered Life. Some of you are familiar with uh, the term dispensationalism, a dispensationalist, uh, or a dispensation. Uh, Some of you know what that is, but briefly, for those who may not be familiar, uh, that is a word that comes from the King James Version of the Bible. And it's used a few times. Uh, Importantly, it's used in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 and verse 2, for example. In the King James, uh, Paul, who writes that, says, You have heard of the dispensation of God's grace that was given to me for you. The dispensation of God's grace. What what is that? Uh, The word dispensation is an English word that's a translation of one Greek word. It's one Greek word that is a compound of two separate Greek words. So the Greek word is this, oikonomos, oikonomos. And the two Greek words that that is a compound of are oikos and namos. Oikos means house. Namos means law. And so dispensation means house law or house order, or house rule. And the idea is this, that the entire world is God's. It's his house. And he has ordered it different ways at different times. And the time, Ephesians 3, that we are in now is called the house order, the dispensation of God's grace. As opposed to the dispensation, the house order of law for instance, in the first part of your Bible. So that's what a dispensation is. A dispensation is a different arrangement given by God for the ordering of his house. And he says in these various arrangements, this is what you're to do. This is what you're to do in order to uh, have a relationship with me, in order to please me, fulfill my purposes, and so on. So you have some very clear dispensations in the Bible, different arrangements, right? I mean, one is, we just start off with one that you've never experienced, and I've never experienced, a garden. And there's just two people there. And God has a dispensation there where he tells them, here's the deal, here's what I'm telling you to do, till the garden, be fruitful and multiply. You may eat freely of all the trees in the, in the garden, but of this one tree in the midst of the garden you may not. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's, that's a house order. This is his house, and he's ordered it that way. So you could label that the dispensation of whatever you want. A lot of people call that the dispensation of innocence. Now, there are, I would argue, others in between, but just for the sake of making the point, and one that we all agree on, there comes a point in time where God gives his law to Moses. And God orders his house according to the giving of the law and the observance of the law and the sacrifices and the ceremonies and all of that that go with the law and the penalties and regulations and all of that that go with this legal system. And so you could call that the dispensation of the law. So you've got the dispensation of innocence, you've got the dispensation of the law, and then Jesus Christ comes. And in John chapter 1 and verse 17, John 1, 17, John says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
signifying we've entered a different kind of period here. And in fact, in your New Testament, you find many times the law has been done away. Romans 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. So we have now entered a different era. And Paul labels that in Ephesians 3, the dispensation of God's grace. So you could call it dispensation of innocence, law, grace. And then in the future, there's going to be, there's going to be at least one other dispensation. Christ is going to come and set up his kingdom. And that'll be different than what we're in now. All of his enemies. We're all looking forward to this, right? And uh, a time when we are free not only from the power and the penalty of sin, but from the presence of sin. Christ as king sits on a throne in Jerusalem. And so we have what the uh, Bible refers to as the kingdom. So you could call it the dispensation of the kingdom. You've got at least four. I would argue there's seven, but that's not my bigger point. There's at least four, okay? And these are different house orders, different arrangements. Now, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. But I just think that whole thing is cool. Now let's look at the gospel-centered life. No, here's what it has to do. One of the things that those of us who believe that these dispensations are identified in the Bible, as I say, at least four are quite clear. One of the things that there is a danger of doing is dividing up the Bible in very unhelpful and sometimes erroneous ways. Because there's that dispensation and this dispensation, and so they're hermetically sealed, and they don't have anything in common with each other, many think. Well, how does that affect what we're going to look at on page 50 in, in just a bit? Here's, here's one of the ways that some have misunderstood, I am convinced, dispensationalism and the relationship between the first part of your Bible and the second part, the New Testament, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think of it this way. In the first part of your Bible, it is dominated, is it not, by the dispensation of the law. And so you have the contrast between the Old Testament and New Testament, and it could be thought of this way, law and grace. Okay, so far so good, law and grace. And as the law is implemented, God called out a nation to be his very own. A particular race of people, the Jews, comprising a particular nation, Israel, to carry out his purposes. And so you not only have the contrast between law and grace, you have the contrast between, between Israel and the church in the New Testament. And as you continue to think about the way things operated in the first part of the Bible and the way they operate under the new house order, the new arrangement that we are in, you see that when people worshipped God in the Old Testament, they actually had to go somewhere. They had to go to the tabernacle. They had to go to the temple. If you didn't have access to the temple, you would, you would acknowledge the fact that God had a special relationship to this place and this building in Jerusalem by praying in that direction. Do you all remember when Daniel was in Babylon? That's exactly what he did. He prays toward Jerusalem. Why? Because there was a particular location. So you could see a further contrast between the Old Testament and New Testament that there was a particular place and now God's, God's presence is universal is one way to look at it. John 4. 
you remember the Samaritan woman. Jesus is talking to her, and she says, you know, your uh, forefathers worshipped at this mountain. Our forefathers worshipped at that mountain. Which is the right place to worship? And Jesus said, the time is coming, and now is. And now is. Where you will neither worship at this mountain or that mountain. But God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, big change. Nothing particularly special about a particular location anymore. Now, worshipers all over, universally, not in a particular nation, not part of a particular race. And so you could see not only the law, grace, and Israel church, but you could see the contrast between the temple and individual Christians. Now, that's where it can start to go south if you're not really careful. Because you can conclude, if you're not careful that the collection of these Christians together in particular locales, you could conclude that that's unimportant. That was important in the Old Testament. There was a particular place and those people got together and they had a place of worship and all that, but, but not anymore. Now it's just universal and it's everybody worshiping God individually. In fact... In contrast to the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, what does the Bible say about the temple? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So God had a special relationship to a place and a building even in the first part of the Bible. Now, his special relationship is to you wherever you are. And so you, wherever you are, and you two or three friends... Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I'm with them. Hallelujah, we got a church. Wrong. And that's where it can go south. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The Bible says, your body, do you not know that your body, your body, individual body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? But this is what many people don't realize. That in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, before chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that same phrase is used with a very important distinction. And if you have your Bible, I want to point this very important distinction out to you. 1 Corinthians 3. So what we're trying to get at here is, okay, in the Old Testament, there's, it's, it's certainly different than it is in the New Testament, different dispensations, law and grace and Israel and the church, temple and individual. So how does God see our collective activity together? Is there even such a thing as our collective identity and, and activity together? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but notice in chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now, if, you're not, if you don't understand what I'm going to tell you, then you could read that verse and think it's exactly like chapter 6 and verse 19. That your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You, individually, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I just read from the NIV, and notice the NIV says... Do you not know? Don't you know that you yourselves, plural. Now, why does it say that? 
Here's why. Because in the Greek language, in which your New Testament was written, uh, unlike in English, they had a way to differentiate between you plural and you singular. See, we don't. When we say first person you, it sounds exactly the same as second person you, plural you. So we say, if I say, you know, will you take this clipboard, and I'm pointing to somebody, I'm talking about you singular. And if I say, will you sign the sheet when it goes by, am I talking about an individual person or am I talking about, but it sounds exactly the same, doesn't it? So context determines which one, singular or plural, in English. But in Greek, they're actually spelled different. In English, you is Y-O-U. In Greek, they're spelled different. And so when you see them, you know if it's talking about you individually, singular, or you collectively. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your, you, singular body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 3, the reason the NIV says you yourselves are God's temple is because it's the plural you. You collectively. You the bunch of you all. So, see, you know, Greek had this precision. Pikeville has this precision, too. My mom's from Pikeville, Kentucky. And we had you, and then we had y'all. And y'all's a way of saying you and all of yous. Yeah, and, then, and some people say yous. And if we really wanted to emphasize, like, everybody come on over, we say all y'all. Come on over. Right? In Greek, you could differentiate by the way it's spelled between singular and plural. And in chapter 3, you yourselves are the temple. And then verse 17 goes on to say, you yourselves are God's temple. But verse 17 says, and anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Yikes. So what's being referred to here? This collection of Christians in a particular location called Corinth. If you look at chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2, Paul says, this is Paul, and I am writing to the saints in Corinth in a particular location. And you all in this particular location are collectively God's temple. And with all of the difficulty that was going on in that church and those who were causing trouble for that church, it's a solemn warning. Anyone who destroys this church, God will destroy him. So, in our contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is the law and there's grace and there's Israel in the church and there is the temple and there is the individual Christian. But do not make the leap as many have that therefore the collective activity of God's people in a particular location doesn't matter. God cares very deeply about that, as a matter of fact. How do I know he cares about it? Well, one, I don't want to be that guy. Right? In verse 17, that's one. But two, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 14, Here's what it says, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14. 
I have written you these things so that, verse 15, people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. I have written you these things so that people will know how to conduct themselves in some sphere. And that sphere is described three ways. God's household. It's also called the church of the living God. It's called the pillar and foundation of the truth. Whatever that thing is, it's really important. It's God's family. It's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So what's that referring to? Now, it could be referring to something called the universal church. In the Bible, the word that's translated church is the Greek word ekklesia. Ek means out. Kaleo means call. Ekklesia means called out once. So the ekklesia is sometimes, it's used 114 times in the New Testament. Of those 114, sometimes the context is This is every Christian in every location in the world, wherever they are, that is part of the church universal, not in a particular location. And the question is, which way is it being used in 1 Timothy 3.15? Well, context has to tell you that. I have written you these things. What things? So that you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in this thing called God's household, ecclesia of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. What things? Well, he's just written a bunch of things. You're at the end of chapter 3 when you get to verses 14 and 15 and 16. And starting in chapter 2, if you, if you have that open, if you were to look at chapter 2 and right above chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, right above verse 1, it says, your Bible is going to say something like this, rules for worship or instructions for worship. And then goes on to talk about when you come together, this is what should happen. Prayers should be made for all men, for kings and for all those who are in authority. Then you come down to verse 9 in chapter 2. And it talks about modesty. It talks about dress, actually, when you come together. And then you, you come down to verse 11. And it talks about the role of women in worship. When you come to chapter 3, verse 1, if anyone desires the office of, the NIV says, an overseer, that's a synonym for pastor. If anybody wants to be a pastor, that's a good, noble work, it says. Now, verse 2, an overseer must be blameless or above reproach, the husband of but one wife, and goes on to give qualifications for being a pastor in God's church all the way down to verse 7. Then you come to verse 8 and it says, deacons likewise. And then you come down to verse 11 and it says, and deacons wives. And it gives four qualifications for deacons wives. And then verse 12 and 13, back to deacons, which brings us full circle to verse 14. I have written you these things so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Where? God's family, God's household. Church of the Living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. Is this talking about a local assembly of people or is it talking about the universal church? 
context conclusively, absolutely, without, without doubt. This is how people behave themselves in a local assembly that comes together to pray and have worship and that has to deal with issues like modesty and, and, and various roles within the church and who's qualified to be in leadership. And I've written you th these things so that you'll know how it ought to go. In God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. So would you guys conclude with me, God thinks a lot of the church? And I, I would just say, don't mess with the church, number one. Doesn't mean don't mess with me. Don't mess with me, but still. <laughs> but God thinks, God thinks extremely, extremely highly of not just the church in general, the church in particular, the local, the church in a particular lo locale carrying out his work and how it interacts and how it behaves and how it functions. So he's written, he's spilled ink to say this is how you conduct yourself. So the church is not contrary to what many have erroneously come to believe because, frankly, many have taken a false dispensational approach to say there was a time when God cared about the collective gathering of God's people and now not so much. It's wherever you are, whatever you happen to be doing. And God says, nope, 99 of those 114 times that ecclesia is used, it is used of the local assembly. 99. And further, about 60 times in your New Testament, God uses a Greek word, alelon, which is two English words, one another. Love one another. Pray for one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. On and on the one another's go. Guess who those one another's are? Guess who they're written to? All those letters in your New Testament, you know who they're written to? They're written to local churches. Or they're written to leaders of local churches like Timothy or like Titus. So as you come to page 50 in your notes, you were called to freedom, Galatians 5.13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When we truly understand the depth and richness of the gospel, we naturally feel joy, delight, freedom because of who Jesus is, what he's done. But as that verse teaches, it's possible to use even our freedom as, quote, an opportunity for the flesh. Our sinful hearts can take the good benefits of the gospel and use them for selfish purposes. Nowhere is this more evident than in our tendency to make the gospel a private reality. See, this is why I went into that whole deal a private, individual reality. There are so many American Christians who do this. It's one of the reasons that we've got hymns in our hymn book, if we had hymn books. Like, I walk in the garden, how? Remember how I walk in the garden? Alone, just me and Jesus. Now, if that's your favorite hymn, I'm not trying to beat on you. But, Christianity in America is a pretty lonely enterprise. <laughs> it's like we're subcontractors for Jesus. Lone rangers out there doing, doing our own thing, disconnected very often from other Christians. 
And nowhere is this more evident, that second paragraph, than the tendency to make the gospel a private reality. When we hear words like transformation, renewal, growth, we conceive of those benefits as primarily personal and internal. It's my transformation, my growth, the gospel's renewal of my heart. And it is personal and internal, but much more. When God's grace is working on us and in us, it will also work itself out through us. The internal renewal of our minds and hearts creates an external propulsion that moves us out in love and service to others. And the diagram is helpful in illustrating that. Notice the diagram top of page 51. As God's grace operates on my heart, the left side, the inward movement of my heart, then the outward movement of love for God and for others. And both of these are generated from and bring us back to God's grace. In other words, page 51, the gospel is not just the answer to your internal sin, struggles, and heart, heart idols. It's also the answer to your failure to love others, engage the culture, and live missionally. If the gospel's renewing you internally, it will also be propelling you externally. It must do so, for it is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And the kingdom is not personal and private. Jesus taught us, pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. When we're praying for the coming of God's kingdom, we're praying that Jesus would reign in the hearts of people internally and that his will would be done everywhere just as it is in heaven externally. And so what does that look like? And then you have an example of, you know, I've got other people I need to care about. I've got people within the church and I've got people outside of the church. It goes on for about a page to give you an example from... Folks outside of the church and are using our love that Christ has given us to be shown to others, loving your neighbor as yourself, okay? And I just want to make a, a comment about that, though. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Galatians 6.10, it's a really, I, well, it is an important verse, as opposed to all those unimportant verses in the Bible. But here's what Galatians 6.10 says. As you have opportunity... Do good to all men. And then there's this really important phrase, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Notice it's the household of God, the family of believers. There's a priority scheme. So do good to all men, but prioritize those within, those within the household of, of God. And the larger point here is that the gospel and this transformative power that it's to have is not just then for me personally and individually, but rather is to now be seen outwardly in my interactions with those within God's church, the one and others, but then also those outside of God's church in that, in that order. Bottom of page 52 then. Grasping the external propulsion of God's grace is crucial to our understanding of mission. It means that mission is not a duty, but a natural overflow of the gospel's work in us. If you aren't motivated to love, serve, and speak the gospel to people, the answer is not just do it. The answer is to examine your heart, repent of sin, discern where your unbelief is short-circuiting the natural outward movement of the gospel. As the gospel renews your heart, it will also renew your desire to move out in faith into the relationships and opportunities that God places in your path. To put it simply, the grace of God is always going somewhere, moving forward, extending his kingdom, propelling his people toward love and service to others. 
As we learn to live in light of the gospel, mission should be the natural overflow. God's grace brings renewal internally in us so that it might bring renewal externally through us. Now, they asked some questions, and then we'll conclude with this on page 54. Examining your heart, then for mission. And I encourage you to take a look at those. And as you do, I encourage you to think in terms of utilizing the gifts and abilities that God has bestowed upon each of us. The Bible says that God has given each of us gifts and abilities that are now energized by the gospel. Energized because of the love that God has shown me that now in turn I want to be used as a conduit for in love toward others. So what gifts and abilities has God bestowed upon me to be channeled into his mission through his household that is his church? How does that fit for you? How has God gifted you? And when we say that someone has gifted, that means that the thing gifted has been bestowed, right? It's come from God to us. And when God gives you something, he doesn't, he, he doesn't say, I relinquish ownership. You know, if I give, if I give a, a Christmas gift, I give it to you, it's now yours. God never relinquishes ownership. You ever thought of that? Those are still his gifts. As a matter of fact, you never own anything. You're a steward of everything that he gives, including the gifts. So he still owns them. Now what am I going to do with them? How am I going to use them in his work? Now we have a way for you to help you identify that. You say, man, I wouldn't even have any place to start. I think I'm pretty useless. I would have no idea if there's any place for me to serve in God's church. Believe me, there is, and we want to help you do that. And we have a guy in our church whose ministry it is to place you in ministry. And uh, Ken Rapp, most of you know Ken. That's what Ken does. That's his ministry. He's gifted to organize stuff. He's gifted to hassle people. <laughs> and so we picked him to be the guy to move people into, into ministry. All right, so we'll put you in touch with Ken. Let's pray and ask God to help us implement this throughout the week. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider how you have worked and are working in your world. It is your world. You made it and you own it, and you organize it according to your sets of rules. We thank you for the progressive unfolding of your plan of redemption in Scripture. You tell us how it began. You tell us how it was supposed to be. You tell us where it went awry and what your solution is. And you've shown us in this progressive unfolding our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the time was just right, God sent forth his Son. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, having come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you. That not only has God the Son come, but the good news, the gospel, has come to each of us at a point in time. Through circumstances that you have orchestrated, you allowed us the privilege of hearing the good news of Jesus. And your spirit moved on our heart and showed us that we need Jesus. And you changed us and you are changing us from the inside out. Lord, help us to continue to be renewed in the words of, of 
Scripture to be renewed day by day, internally. And may that internal renewal show itself outwardly in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and yes, in your household, this marvelous thing called the church. Together, Lord, we ask you to use collectively what you have brought together in this place at this time to carry out your mission. May we be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us to carry out your work in our Jerusalem and then to the regions beyond. Go with us this week as we ponder and practice what we have learned. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.